In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Guys, let's just go ahead and call it. Today's gospel message is one of the most challenging and imposing parts of the scripture that anyone dare stand here and preach. When it comes to difficult passages or ideas, this text is at the upper echelon, the cream of the crop. These passages where Jesus is telling people they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, or else they have no life in them, they have caused more debate and schism in the church than almost any other passage you can think of. In my very short theological career, I've read multitudes of interpretations and understandings about these passages. And I've got to tell you, I'm still not sure about all of it. But I think I've managed to get my hands around some of it. And so what I want to do this morning is guide you through what to me appears to be a theological minefield by giving you the best map through I have. And I can't promise that in our short time this morning, the complexities of these verses will be utterly explained. But what I think I can promise you is this. These verses aren't here to confuse you. The teachings of Christ have not been recorded just so we all throw our hands in the air and shrug our collective shoulders. I think if we look very carefully at the words of Jesus and use everything we have at our disposal, then these verses become much more accessible than you first thought. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 6, and let's go ahead and hop in. So the claim that Jesus makes in our gospel text that he's the bread of heaven, this isn't the first time he said something like this. Earlier in John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus tells the people, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And when the people heard this, John says that the people grumbled among themselves, and they asked, how could Jesus say something like this, so outlandish and crazy? Just a few verses later in our gospel text, Jesus echoes these same exact words again. In verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The response of those who heard Jesus was exactly the same as it was before, except this time they weren't grumbling about Jesus calling himself manna from heaven. This time their displeasure was directed towards something that was even more outrageous. Jesus told them in explicit detail that the bread he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. Before, maybe they thought Jesus was speaking some metaphor, but now he's left the realm of metaphor altogether and seems to be talking about something literal, something so repugnant to the Jews that it's almost unimaginable. And as they argued and disputed among themselves about this crazy claim of Jesus, Jesus doubles down. Look in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now I can imagine there being some in the crowd that were just about to wrap their minds around what eating the flesh of Jesus might mean. He had said this several times, so maybe there were some who were about to understand. But just as they were about to wrap their minds around what Jesus was saying, about being bred from heaven and eating his flesh, Jesus throws in, oh yeah, by the way, and you got to drink my blood too. And this is the very first place that I think it's obvious that we need to stop this morning. The Jews understand bread from heaven. There was a history that was attached to that idea. Jews understood eating flesh, certainly not the flesh of people, but at least they understood eating meat. They weren't vegetarians. 
But the very first thing you must see in this text, what you cannot miss here, is the strong cultural prohibitions that Jews had towards touching blood, let alone drinking it. Jewish butchers would go so far as to completely drain an animal of its blood before it was butchered for meat. Blood was something that a Jew didn't mess with. It was off limits. Yet here Jesus is not only talking about drinking it, but saying that if you fail to drink it, then you die. So what's going on? Well, the answer may surprise you because I think the Jews who were grumbling about drinking the blood of Jesus actually had a story in their past that would have helped them immensely if they just would have made the connection. One of the most moving stories in the Old Testament about King David comes from a time when he was fighting the Philistines. David was from a small town, Bethlehem, and the Philistines were occupying his hometown. They had taken it over. And if you know anything about David, he wasn't going to let that stand. So David and many of his loyal men, they set out to free Bethlehem from the rule of the Philistines. But their battle against the Philistines was tough. The Philistines wouldn't surrender. One day there was a lull in the battle, and David found himself to be very thirsty. David just happened to say out loud how much he would like to have a drink of water from this well that he knew in Bethlehem. And three of David's bravest men who loved and respected David, men that would die for David, heard David say this, and unbeknownst to David, these three set out to go behind enemy lines and retrieve a drink of water for their king. As it turns out, they were successful. These three men returned back to David unscathed, carrying the water that David had longed to drink. But David didn't drink the water they brought him. Instead, David says this in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 17. Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went and risked their lives? David did not want to profit from the bravery of his men. He didn't want to benefit from their readiness to put their lives on the line for him. And so David takes the water and he pours it onto the ground. In the mind of David, the sacrifice those men were willing to make was so great, it was so profound, that to profit from their deed was likened to drinking their blood. Now, with that story in mind, take a moment to think about the words of Jesus now. When Jesus says you must eat his flesh, he's not commanding his followers to become cannibals. When Jesus says that you must drink his blood, he's not ordering everyone to consume his hemoglobin. Of course he's not asking us to do that. Instead, I think what Jesus means is what David meant. David refuses to drink the blood of his comrades. He refused to profit from them risking their lives. But Jesus turns to them and says, I'll do you one better. Jesus tells them that he, their king, will put his own life at risk, that he will lose his life for the sake of his friends, and that in and through his sacrifice, his friends will profit from his death. They will drink his blood, and by doing so, their thirst will be quenched, and their lives will be saved. If you drink the blood of Jesus, if you profit from the sacrifice he makes for you, then you will consume something that is so potent that even death itself will fail to hold on to you. The sacrifice of the king will be so real and substantial that nothing in the heavens above or on the earth below can dilute its power. Now, I do think some of what Jesus says in our gospel text 
is a cultural tool. It's an idiom that people should have understood. They should not have taken it literally. But that doesn't mean I think that's all that's here. When Jesus says we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, there is more going on than just a cultural idiom or metaphor. There's something else going on here that transcends the Jewish culture altogether. The words of Jesus, the command to eat his flesh and drink his blood, are not purely a non-physical act. His words leave very little room for it to be solely an, an interact of contemplation or an exercise in memory. When John uses the word eat, he deliberately uses a Greek word that is very closely associated with the act of physical eating. The most direct translation of the word eat in John 6 that's used in our gospel text would be the word munch or chew. And as everyone knows, munching and chewing are very physical acts. These aren't like remembering something. And as you know, every Sunday we munch and chew together in the Eucharistic feast. And when we're finished, we pray a prayer that contains these words. So to eat the flesh of your dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood. We say that together. And those are very strong words. Words so strong that God-fearing, Jesus-loving Christians hold a variety of opinions on the words of Jesus and what they really mean. Some Christians view the Eucharist as mainly some act of intercontemplation, whether they're just thinking about Jesus. Some view it as the physical consumption of Jesus' body. I'm not here this morning to settle that debate. I'm not going to wade into that issue and try to convince you one way or the other. But what I will do is frame the question as well as I possibly can, and with that frame in place, turn and look at the words of Jesus again. So remember, we first pointed out that the command of Jesus to eat his flesh and drink his blood contained metaphorical, non-physical commands. And if you correctly understand them, you can see that Jesus wasn't commanding anyone to become cannibals or to defile themselves by drinking blood. No, he was using physical objects to describe non-physical realities. But then I seemed to say the exact opposite. I said that the words of Jesus left no room for his command to be purely a non-physical reality. The words of Christ in John 6 are indelibly connected to a physical act. So how can both of these things be true? How can Jesus command both non-physical and physical realities? Well, Christians believe that the physical world is real. It's not an illusion. And the physical world matters so much to God that God left his dwelling place in heaven and took on human flesh. Christians also believe that there's more to reality than just the physical world, though. We're not materialists. Christians believe there's a spiritual world, a world where God and the angels and all the company of heaven dwell. And that non-physical world exists alongside the material world. The spiritual realm can overlap, it can inhabit, it can permeate the physical world. And Christians hold both of these things to be true. Material and non-material realities both exist together. For the Christian, this is not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction because Christians believe the physical and the spiritual are made for one another. Christians believe that when God created the universe and all the physical stuff you see, he purposely made it compatible with the spiritual. 
Christians believe that God created the physical world to be compatible with the spiritual because it was God's intention all along to descend from the spiritual and inhabit this world. In the beginning, it was God's intention to descend from the heights of heaven and make his dwelling among us. You can also hear this language whenever we talk about salvation. When we say that someone has repented and has been saved, when we say that someone has been born again and filled with the Spirit, are we speaking only about metaphor? Do Christians believe that you're metaphorically saved from something? That you're metaphorically filled with the Spirit? Of course not. If you have been born again, then in your physical body resides the very Spirit of the living God. But does that mean that someone could cut you open and locate the Holy Spirit in your body? When we say that Jesus lives in my heart, are we talking about the four-chambered organ that's in my chest? Of course not. Christians believe that the Spirit of God really does reside in their physical bodies. And at the same time, Christians believe the Spirit is not discoverable in them physically. The infilling of the Spirit is not metaphorical or literal. It's something altogether different. It's sacramental. A true spiritual reality that fills a physical one. And if you can frame that idea in your mind, if you can begin to grasp that spiritual and physical realities can co-inhabit one another, that spiritual and physical realities can dwell in and through one another, then the words of Jesus when applied to the Eucharist become no problem at all. It seems to me that Christians have no issue believing a spiritual reality can inhabit and permeate a physical one. And so it seems to me that we should have no problem believing that about the Eucharist either. But why would Christ institute something like the Eucharist? Why institute something as complex and confounding as the mystical supper and run the risk of this much confusion? Well, that's another very, very complicated yet unavoidable question. Here's the best answer that I have for you. The Eucharist seems to be a point of convergence. Many different streams of thought and time all coming together in one place. In the Eucharist, elements of the past, the present, and the future all converge on one another. And in their convergence, we see both promises kept and promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Here's what I mean. At the Last Supper, Christ celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. And as you know, the Passover meal was considered ancient even in the days of Jesus. By the time Jesus and his disciples celebrate the Passover in John's Gospel, it had been celebrated for nearly 15 centuries. This is a profoundly sacred tradition, a tradition that recalled God's power and mercy and provision and deliverance of his people. Yet with all of the Passover's history and importance and deep significance, Christ, sitting in a hole in the wall upper room in Jerusalem, pronounced the celebration of the Passover meal, as the disciples knew it, at an end. The Passover, as they had always understood it, was completed, and in its place, Jesus would establish a new tradition. Jesus would establish a new Passover meal. And this meal would not just recall God's triumph over Pharaoh. It would not recall just Israel's escape from Egypt. This new Passover meal would celebrate God's triumph over hell and Satan. This new Passover meal would recall all of mankind's escape from sin and death. 
in and through Christ the Passover lamb, whether you are a Jew or Gentile, everyone could now celebrate God's provision. Everyone could celebrate their own exodus from enslavement of sin and death. And the Eucharist is that exact celebration. The Eucharist is a celebration of God's sacrifice and provision, his love and mercy and faithfulness to all mankind. It's a celebration that has its origins 4,000 years ago in Egypt. It's also a celebration that is renewed and supplied with new meaning 2,000 years ago by Jesus in an upper room. And it's, celebration, it's a celebration that continues to this very day. And we are invited to come and join in this celebration every single Sunday in Fort Worth, Texas. And as if all of that weren't enough, there's still yet more. The Eucharist isn't just a celebration of what God has done in the past and present. The Eucharist itself is a foretaste of what God has promised to do in the future. One day, very soon, the Lord Jesus will split the eastern sky and he will call his church up and home. Those who are in his kingdom, those who love Jesus with their whole hearts, will be wed to Jesus, just as a bride is wed to a groom. Our long engagement to Jesus will be over, and in a way that we can't currently fathom, we will be his and he will be ours. After our nuptial vows are made on that day and we are forever sealed as Jesus' very own, Christ has promised to host what most assuredly is the biggest shindig the world has ever seen. The book of the Revelation calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb. And at the culmination of all things, we, the church, will sit and feast with Jesus, our love. We will sit and feast in the presence of the Father. In and by the Holy Spirit, we will move and love and have our being. And until that glorious day comes, Christ has given us a meal to hold us over. He's given us a meal as a promise, a meal that satisfies, a meal that yet deepens our hunger for him. And the Eucharist is that exact thing. Guys, I know the world can be a dark and cruel place. Even for those who love Jesus, we can find ourselves beaten down and discouraged, feeling cut off and unloved. Even those who have a hope in the world to come can find themselves struggling to put one foot in front of the other in this one. It's easy in this world to feel isolated and alone, to feel as to feel as if no one knows you, no one understands you, to feel as if no one cares if you come or go. It's easy to believe you don't fit in, that you don't have a role. It's easy to believe that your life is without consequence and you mean next to nothing. That's what this world fosters in your heart if you let it. But guys, I've been there. Many of us have been there. Maybe you're there right now. And if that's something that, that you're feeling and going through, can I give you something else to hold on to? God has made a promise, a promise to make you his very own if you would just have him. God has made a promise to make a way for you to be with him. God has made a promise that he will not leave you nor forsake you, and one day he will come for you and claim you as his own. 
God has promised you all of this and then goes one step further. God takes all of his unseen acts of faithfulness in the past, all of the unseen provisions he gives you in the present, all of the unrealized promises in the future, and he makes them visible to us in a Eucharistic communal feast. And he did all of this because he knows how cruel this world can be, because he also wants you to remember how good he can be and that the cruelties of this world will not last forever. One day soon, Jesus Christ himself will set things straight. And when that day comes, when we see him face to face, we will feast with all the company of heaven. And then, quite ironically, the Eucharistic feast itself will be fulfilled and come to an end. It will end because we will no longer need a foretaste of what's to come. No, one day we will have the feast itself. We will have Jesus and one another face to face. And from that point on, as C.S. Lewis says in the last line of his book, The Last Battle, we begin chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has ever read, a story which goes on forever and ever, a story in which every chapter is better than the one before. Amen.